Welcome to the Velo News Podcast. Before we get started with this week's episode of the Velo News Podcast, we have to tell you about a very exciting giveaway from our sponsor, Saris, manufacturers of PowerTap. That's right, Fred. For the next two weeks, up until July 26th, you can head to powertap.com slash velonews and enter to win a free that is zero dollars mm. pair of power tap single-sided pedals that, what a coincidence zero dollars happens to be my favorite price <laughs> um the single-sided pedals great entry point for those will uh, wanting to get into training with power you know they are third party validated they're extremely accurate and here's the best part kaylee they they're transportable. You can take them everywhere you want to go. You don't have to lug or a hub or like a chain ring around. You just take your pedals off. Take them wherever you want to go. Absolutely. For anybody who has multiple bikes and wants to move their power meter around, it is absolutely the easiest way to do so. I'm here in France. I brought a... I actually brought a bike with me here to Wait. the Tour de France. Wait. I know. I know. I never ride it. I work too much. Yeah, sure. Uh... <laughs> I have a pair of PowerTap single-sided pedals here with me, actually. You know, I don't know about this, Kaylee. I think I'm going to have to assign you more work, keep <laughs> you from testing out those pedals. Not working too much already. Uh, anyway, again, that URL is powertap.com slash velonews. Go enter to win some of these awesome pedals. Uh, on with the show. We are back. We are back with the Velo News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer, Editor-in-Chief of Velo News. And guys, I'm so happy right now. I can't... Cannot describe how overjoyed I am to be sitting across the table from Mr. Andy Hood and Kaylee Fretz. I think you should try. I think you should try to describe how overjoyed you are. Fred. I mean, I'm just I'm like the happiest man in all of France right now because right now we're sitting we're in France we're in Bergerac we're at the finish line of uh, stage ten of the Tour Correct. de France. We've we've lost count a little bit. Uh, we've been here a little while. Fred, you showed up today. We caught you yeah. at the at the coffee stop right across from the train station. Picked you up. I was about nine coffees deep at that point, battling the. Jet lag, uh, hoodie. Did I don't think you recognized me. Did you recognize me? It's been a while since I've seen you at the tour, Freddie. I mean, when was the last time? Uh, for me, 2013. Yeah, uh, we're sitting on a delightful patio here in downtown Bergerac. People are chattering away in French around us. Mostly French. Mostly French. Yep. And we fancy that. I know, <laughs> but like we're going to be speaking in English. We're going to be talking bike racing because we have had ten stages of the tour. And since we last caught up with everyone, boy, a lot's happened. We have, what, a, gr a green jersey battle that's, that's kind of taking shape. A battle. We would describe it as a battle. Uh, you know, it is the first time in quite a long time that we've had any battle at all. Yeah. Peter Sagan has definitely owned this competition for quite a while, about five years. Uh, so for the first time in a long time, we have, well, not a wide open race for the green jersey, but at least more than one rider who might potentially win it. Yeah, and also we have to talk about the GC picture because, I mean, this race has basically been turned on its head by stage nine into Chambéry, you know? I mean, some guys have gone home. We, uh, Richie Port, no longer in the race. Real bummer. Yeah, I saw that stage described as a uh, 
Jurassic Park stage. Arr. I think that was a French reference, but uh, <laughs> it was like a Stone Age dinosaur throwdown. I mean, old school stage. Really turned the uh, took the guts out of a GC. Really, yeah. if you ask me. Yeah, who I like Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, who was uh, Stegosaurus? I don't know. We can get into it. And finally, we have to hear from some of our regular contributors. I think we have George Bennett, who sent in a diary. We do indeed have George. And just just so our listeners know, all right, George is kind of a sleeper here. Uh, George won the Tour of California. That's yeah. definitely where you might know him from. However, you know, he came into this Tour de France with expectations, but sort of tempered expectations. George is currently sitting in 10th overall, which is a fantastic result for him. He was 7th on that big day on Sunday. So, yeah, we definitely want to hear from George and essentially get a little get a little update from him after the first rest. Ooh, here's a question. So he's 10th overall. He is a diarist for our podcast. Are we winning Podcast GC right now? I think we might be winning Podcast GC. Ooh, wow. Yeah. I mean... Maybe we'll tweet about that. NBC has Taylor Finney doing a video diary, but George is much higher on NBC than Taylor. Bragworthy <laughs> statistics there, you know? Wow, Velody's podcast, highest writer on GC. Um, anyway, guys, let's get into it. Stage 10 finished up in Bergerac today. Marcel Kittle, I mean, he just walked away with it. I mean, he was sprinting alongside everyone else and then all of a sudden he wasn't anymore because he was so far ahead yeah a friend, a friend of mine from back in Boulder was watching the NBC broadcast and said that Phil Liggett again we don't we don't see the NBC broadcast here in, in France uh, told me that Phil Liggett called him as the winner like 40 meters from the finish line because it was that clear that he was going to take the victory so it's becoming pretty obvious that Kittle has a, has a very good shot of holding the green jersey he's Correct. in the green jersey right now this would be interesting because you know, we've been living in this era of Peter Sagan dominating the green jersey at the Tour. In fact, the last sort of heavy traditional sprinter to win the green jersey, that was 2011 with Mark Cavendish. And Hoodie, you know, what is it about the, you know, the conversation around heavy sprinter versus breakaway guy who can get intermediate sprints and win stages um, that, that makes this race interesting? And now that we don't really have one of those guys, what does that mean for Kittle? Actually, Matthews is trying to become that guy yeah. in this tour. Yesterday, he was in the breakaway. Sunweb really run a, ran a pretty tactical race. Yesterday, they got, got Matthews out there. took that points, uh, intermediate points uh, sprint mid-late race. And, uh, and that might have cost him today. He was, I think he was 13th on today's stage. Really just blew out what his short-term chances were. But the big question is for Big Marcel, can he get to Paris. I think this year, yes, we have uh, one big hard stage in the Pyrenees and the uh, Isward and, the, and, uh, and I think he'll make it to Paris and, and he's going he's gonna to win the uh, green jersey. Bold claim there. Bold claim. I, I actually caught up with Michael Matthews after the stage today. I say I, uh, myself and basically all, 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 of, all of Australian media <laughs> caught up with, with Michael Matthews after the stage. Uh, I tried to. He was pissed. He just rode by he me. He was did super pissed. He was sort of like, you know, cruising around the bus, looking real bum, teammates coming up, sort of patting him on the back. Uh, he actually wasn't all that stoked with the way that his team performed today. They, he said that they dropped him off pretty far back, and that, that was kind of this problem in the sprint. that he, had, he said he had to make a big sprint just to get to, to, to 15th, basically, uh, into the top 15 where the, where the points are. Anyway, let's, let's cut to, let's cut to, to Mr. Matthews. Uh, I did have to boost the hell out of this audio. I apologize in advance because he was mumbling very quietly. He was a big a bit of a mumbler. Wait, a quiet Australian? A very quiet Australian. <laughs> what the? Turns out when Australians are super bummed, they get a little bit mumbly. So anyway, I boosted the hell out of this, so there's quite a bit of background noise, but you can still hear what he's saying. Devastated. I think uh, he's probably the 
the word to, to put out now. I think um, if you want to go for that jersey, you need to be up there every single day. And um, till now, I've uh, I've been con pretty consistent with that. But um, yeah, with this finish, it's um, yeah, it's a bit disappointing. Okay. And, Can you uh, still win, Brian? I think that's something we have to discuss tonight. Whether we um, we keep going for it or we give it a miss and uh, yeah, stop going for the intermediates and just focus on stages. Yeah, not a happy camper. No. Uh, not sounding terribly stoked. Um, yeah, I mean, I wrote about this today. It really does seem like you know the guys who are sitting second and third in the green jersey chase right now, and that's Matthews and Greipel. I mean, the only way that they can really contend now is if they're willing to go on breakaways to grab intermediate sprints and win the the stages in these bunch kicks. I mean, do we think do we think they can do it? I mean, Hoodie already called it for Kittle. I mean, uh, it's a one and a half man race. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's uh, if Kittle stays upright, gets to Paris. I mean, mathematically, I think it's almost impossible for. Uh, for Greipel or your man there, Christoph, to get back into this thing. They have to win like five stages in a row. There's only like three stages left for the sprinters anyway. So it's Kittles to lose. You know, it was really weird because when Sagan got kicked out, like none of us wanted to see Sagan get kicked out, of course, but there was this sentiment that, well, it's opened up the green jersey. You know, the green jersey is going to be the exciting competition, you know, and I don't know. Hasn't really lived up to it. I mean, it might have been more exciting if Kittle wasn't so dominant in the finales. You know, if he had just if he had just come in second and third and fourth a couple times, we'd we'd see a much much closer race here. But as it is, if he's going to win six, maybe even seven stages in the Tour de France, I mean, if you win six or seven stages in the Tour de France and you don't win the green jersey, there's something wrong with the green jersey competition. And also, I have to say, I think the way that the uh, the ASO has jiggled the uh, points. You know, before we used to have two or three intermediate sprints uh, a day, yeah. plus we had fewer points at the finish line, and that's how we got those down-to-the-wire final-day Champs-Élysées sprints for green. The way it's set up now, you win a couple of stages, you get an intermediate sprint because there's only one a day. The race is almost over by the first week anyway. Yeah, well, and, you know, we don't have that... Peter Sagan or that Thor who shoved who, you know, knows that they have to go on the attack like two or three hilly days, gobble up those intermediate sprints in addition to the stage wins in order in order to, you know, make it happen this year. So all we do know is that Eric Zabel's record of six uh, green jerseys is safe. Yeah, for now. For this year. Yeah, yeah. it's true. Uh, Kaylee, you are here in France. You have your bicycle with you. I do indeed. Wow, look at you. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Um, tell me about the extra fancy special um, training device you've brought with you with your with your bicycle. Well, in an effort to be slightly less out of shape when I get back from covering the Tour de France, I have brought with me and with my bicycle a PowerTap single-sided pedal power meter. Oh my gosh, these are the very uh, budget-friendly power meters made by Saris and PowerTap, $6.99 retail. And for fans of the Velo News podcast, we have a great giveaway going with the single-sided power meter. And that is, if you go to powertap.com slash velonews before... July 26th, I believe it is? Correct, July 26th. You can register to win a free pair of these pedals. Free PowerTap single-sided power meter. And this will allow you to travel the world like Kaylee Fretz and bring your bicycle and your pedals. Be just like me. Yeah, just go ride wherever you want. Uh, again, these are great 
um, entry point power meter for anyone who uh, is considering training with power. Yeah, really great price. Uh, you still get the exact same accuracy as with any other power tap power meter, but much cheaper and uh, very portable because it's a pedal. Again, that is powertap.com slash VeloNews. Back to the show. Uh, guys, another wrinkle in the sprint jersey. Uh, well, in the sprint competition we need to talk to before moving on. Uh, it happened, guys. It finally happened. I think a lot of us called this at some point. Nasir Buhani finally punched a dude. He, like, <laughs> he like punched another rider. He full-on punched another rider. Yeah, some quick-step rider. We are still trying to figure out whether this was Jack Bauer or Sabatini. Uh, the overhead shot is not entirely clear. I got in touch with the, uh, the, the, the team press officer who has not responded to me yet with who got punched by Buhani. But it is quite clear that Buhani punched somebody. Uh, granted, granted, uh, it appears that he was sort of elbowed or shoved a little bit first. However... Uh, at least when I was racing bikes, the rule was always you don't take your hand off the bars. If you do take your hand off the bars, that's your fault. Hey, watch out for elbows. Our elbows are bad. You'll get kicked out of the race for that. <laughs> but if you just lean over and full on deck a dude in the face, it's 200, 200 Swiss francs. Well, someone chimed in on Twitter said, Justice a du vitesse. Yeah. <laughs> which is justice at two speeds, which is an old doping reference. An old doping joke. The uh, We always said that the Peloton was at two speeds back in the day. Uh, you know, Nasir Buhani's been kind of a punchline around the old uh, Vela News. Of, oh, my God. A punching punchline. Ba-bam. Uh, around the old Vela News podcast offices for a while now. But I don't know if any of us actually expected him, like, in the heat of battle to just deck a dude. To punch somebody? Yeah. No, I didn't really expect it. And honestly, I mean, okay, to, to sort of uh, be serious about this for just it's a moment. It's not great. I mean, the guy should be disqualified. Yeah. You take your hands off the bars and you whack another rider. I don't care what the circumstances surrounding that issue were. I don't care if he got bumped. I don't care if he insulted your mother. You were disqualified from the bicycle race. And the fact that they haven't, particularly after disqualifying Sagan, I think is pretty shameful. I guess the real question around this is going to be like, how will the um, French reporters find ways to like um, defend him sort of, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, well, you know, from that, from this angle, you cannot tell if uh, he was just sneezing. Well, that actually happened. I, I, one of my colleagues today, I walked out of the press room, and I said, hey, what about Buhani punching guy? It was not a punch, it was a shove. <laughs> <laughs> he shoved him with the fist in his face. I was just looking around for some French fellas that we would recognize here at the uh, brasserie where we were having dinner, but I did not see any, unfortunately. That would have been perfect. We could pull them over right now. Uh, ask him for their take. Alas. Uh, yeah, no, the strong take. Buhani should be gone. I mean, that's just a real, that's just a real jerk move. That's, that's you just can't take your hands no, off the bars. I mean, that, that. that it comes down to it's a very very simple rule, and that's actually part part of the reason why I had such a problem with the uh, the Sagan thing. So, you know, I, I've always kind of been a believer that if you keep your hands in the bars, you can sh- you can kind of throw your weight around however you want, as long as your hands are on the bars, which Buhani's again were not. Yeah, God. Well. We'll leave the uh, sprinters over in their corner for now. I'm afraid I might get punched in the face. Uh, Guys, we need to talk GC because, you know, we came into Sunday's stage nine. Chris Froome was in the lead. Garen Thomas was in second. Sky had a stranglehold on this race. Um, I wouldn't say that has changed particularly too much after stage nine, but everything else seems to have. So Richie Port is gone. Garrett Thomas is gone. Rafael Micah is gone. Um, Fabio Aru, he's still there, 18 seconds back. But I don't know. He didn't seem to be, well, he did seem to be fairly motivated to attack Chris Froome. <laughs> but what 
when we look at the GC battle now after stage nine, what are we thinking about? What are the storylines now to follow heading into the next sort of set of decisive stages in this race? Well, the, one of the big factors is the non-factor of Nairo Quintana. No one even mentioned Nairo Quintana. I think you asked a question today in the press conference to uh, Froome. Nairo's name didn't come up, did it? No, in I fact, about Nairo, his rivals. Nairo's been the Mr. Invisible Man throughout this whole tour, and he just got dropped on uh, Mont de Chat. And, you know, he's still not that far back. You know, maybe Nairo can have like, a great day. But it's interesting how coming into this tour, Nairo has been the center of the conversation every year. And this year with the double falling short and now at the tour, it's just I think that's interesting <laughs> because like nobody really bought the whole the storyline that he and uh, his team were putting out, which is that Nairo is going to be stronger in the second Grand Tour of the year. We were all real skeptical of that to the point that, yeah, I mean... Nobody's really been talking about him, and no. kabam, he's he, he's off the back. I mean, I do think that he's the kind of rider, and I said this on the uh, we did a little Facebook live on the Velenews Facebook last night. I said this before. I do think he's the kind of rider who you know he tends to come good in the last week, and there's a, a couple of really important stages in the last week. The Isward stage being the big one. Um, you know, it's it's still entirely possible. This this thing is still really really tight. You know, in previous years we've seen Froome with a three four minute almost almost advantage at this point. Uh, this race is still very, very tight on the GC. It is possible that Quintana could come back with a big, big, big ride on the Iswad, for example, and uh, and do something special. However, with every stage that goes by, every single GC-oriented stage that goes by, that becomes less and less likely. Uh, another rider who, I don't know if he tapped him to be a, like, A-plus grade A GC threat, but, you know, he's up there. Alberto Contador. Gonzo. I mean, he got dropped like a sack of potatoes on Montuchat. He was so far off the back. Well, he crashed twice uh, on this stage, on the run to Montuchat. He was involved in that big crash with uh, Rafa Mica. We have a grab uh, here from uh, Garen Thomas. We're going to throw it to in a little while. Where he, uh, Garen Thomas was talking about coming down uh, the Mont de Bichet or Col de Bichet and saying how... Bitch, it's a bitch of a mountain. <laughs> Garrett Thomas was telling me how Ralph, Ralph and Mike had wanted to be in the front, wanted to be in the front. They let him go in the front. Suddenly the uh, asphalt got kind of uh, bumpy there. He hit the front bakes and he he uh, overended on his bars. Ah. Took out Contador and Garrett Thomas. I think Lusenko as well. All those guys are out of the race now, not Contador. Contador then got up on the Col de Colombier. He was uh, uh, Nairo, knocked him off the bike, yeah. climbing up. Oops. And then by then, uh, Contador said he just lost his, uh, the wind and his sails was gone. Micah just came down right in front of me and nowhere to go. And yeah, just first time I've done my collarbone. And I kept going for the rest of the descent and a couple of K on the flat, but I knew something was bad then. And the team doctor and the race doctor both said the same thing. So yeah, stop and come here, get it checked. And yeah just that it confirmed that uh, yeah it's broke so it's a massive disappointment obviously uh, especially after the Giro that was stage 9 as well and I was sitting second overall at that point as well so I don't know what it is for this year but it's just not happening but um, yeah shit happens isn't it that's just uh, sitting there on the ground you know your tour is over at that moment pretty much yeah I was I knew something was wrong um you know, normally you can just get up and get going again, but yeah, it was—it just didn't feel right. 
then obviously when the team doc said it and then the race doc said it we just had to accept it did you watch the rest of the race did you know what happened or? yeah I did see some I really hope that Richie's okay because I saw a bit of that crash and it was didn't look good it's just not nice to see guys coming down all the time but uh, yeah I really hope he's okay the roads were too dangerous today or was it just uh, that's just racing oh uh, where I crashed I don't think it was I, I just don't know what Micah was doing he he was up the inside of me a few times on the corners was desperate like to just come past so I let him pass and then literally 10 seconds later he's on the floor and taking me down with him and Trent in as well so yeah so Contador's now in 12th, 5, 15 back uh, behind riders like Mikel Landa, <laughs> who's yeah. actually just a domestique. So definitely not the best day for Contador. However, I'm kind of excited about this because I don't think anyone ever thought that Contador was going to win this bicycle race. And now I think because Contador is so does far that behind. Include, does that include um, like, you know, executives of Trek Sega Fredo team? Let's not ask John Burke about that. Uh I think the Contador is going to go crazy on that Foie stage, stage 13, or at least some stage in the, in the remainder of the race. I think he's going to go absolutely nuts and try to win a stage. So it's interesting, in the uh, post-stage press conference today, someone asked Chris Froome about that. Hey, what do you do if Contador attacks now? He's five minutes down. He's not a super threat. You know, wh wh what do you do if he goes for it? And Froome basically said, I expect him to go for it, and I'm not going to give him an inch, you know? Like, yeah, he's far down, but he's still Alberto Contador, you know? So... The problem with Contador now is he is kind of injured and banged up. Yeah. He was saying some comments today after the race. He's not quite sure he's going to be up and ready to really go all in in these Pyrenean stages. And by then, it won't be a factor because, uh, at least in terms of trying to shake up the GC, we're hoping that Alberto can play this kind of role as the great disruptor like he can, like last year at the Frumigal stage yep. where he caught out uh, uh, Sky and uh, you know really hand-delivered the welter win to Nairo. So moving down the list, you know, we have another a number of contenders who are still up there. Um, we have, obviously, uh, Fabio Aru is up there. Roman Bardet. Roman Bardet is still within a minute. Uh, we have Rigoberto Uran. We need to yeah. talk about Uran here. He's 55 seconds back in fourth place. Uh, won a t stage of the Tour de France on... We called it a single speed. It was actually a two-speed. He had the uh, the 39 and the 53 up front, but effectively a single speed because the 39 is not useful in a sprint. Uh, won a stage on a single speed and is sitting in fourth overall with, well, actually not that many GC stages to go. So this is such a ridiculous story. I don't even know where to begin. We watched a replay of the stage today, and like right after Rigoberto Uran like, jams his chain, uh, or he jammed it on a very steep uphill, not far from the finish. And you can see the other guys are like in an appropriate gear and spinning up this steep climb. And Uran is in the chubbiest, thickest gear, and he's just like pedaling along at 30 RPM. And that was, yeah, basically he was stuck in something he, down near the bottom of his, of his cassette. So and we, he didn't what, get dropped. He no, stayed with them. No. So what we think happened, and again, this is actually still not entirely clear. I don't think he's entirely clear on it. Is we think he, the derailleur got hit in that crash with Dan Martin and, and Richie Port because Iran was right there. You know, someone's flailing limb whacked his oh, derailleur, God. basically. Uh, the, the, the end result being that the derailleur stopped working. Uh, DI2 derailleurs, they have sort of a, a crash function where they actually stop moving once they get whacked. It was either that or it just got, you know, the cable came out or just broke. Uh, regardless, 
what ended up happening was a Mavic neutral service mechanic, a guy named Max Rufi, who's actually uh, the driver when I was in a Mavic car for Paris-Roubaix a couple years ago. I know, I've known Max for a couple years. He was leaning out the car, uh, put the derailleur into the 11 tooth cog. So this is the biggest gear that Iran has and just basically said, go for it. And Iran was like, sweet, I'm just going to go for it. And I do think that the, uh, Iran is to be commended here. I think that a lot of riders with an issue like that would kind of freak out and it would, it, would, it would essentially give them an excuse to just hang on the back and, you know, just hang on if they could even hang on. Iran was taking pulls. Yeah. He was taking pulls yeah. in this group of Tour de France favorites and then sprinted for a victory in the 53-11. This, is, this has to be one of the most badass finishes of the Tour de France in recent memory. Yeah, you ever had that happen to you? Like, I'm very remembering a very distinct memory because I have bike problems all the time because my bike is a, just a bu- bucket of bolts. you're a disaster with your bike. Disaster with a bike. <laughs> and I remember uh, the, the rear cable... Fix. R- rear cable snapping and having to ride along in either the 53 or the 39. And it was awful. I was not trying to race. I was simply trying to get home. And, like, every incline all of a sudden felt like I was riding up the side of Mount Everest <laughs> because of the stupid rear cog. I've forgotten to charge DI2 batteries before, and that's a very similar scenario where, uh, yeah, you just end up in whatever gear you happen to, you happen to, to end up in. So. I think it's also no- worth noting that, like, Uran kind of, like, let out the sprint, too. He did. He sprinted in, a fift- in his biggest gear, and yep. you could tell... Like, he started at like 50 RPM. Yeah, you yeah. could tell that he was like way over geared, which I didn't know when I was watching it that he actually had the problem. I was just like, what's that dummy doing sprinting in his hardest gear? <laughs> well, they, they said, uh, Charlie said, you're in this big gear, so you got to lead the sprint out. Those were the team orders coming into the sprint. I mean, a huge win, I think, not only for Ram, but for that whole organization. I think oh, it was yeah. the last win since uh, uh, Ramsus Candelvelo. Uh, no, help me out here, guys. Uh, you're the Honey Badger one in 2014. The there you go. I was getting my getting my uh, Lithuanians mixed Lithuanian, up there. Dan Martin had a win over Fugelzang. 2013. That was 13. Yeah. yeah. And then Tyler Farr won in 2011. But also a huge win for Oran. You know, he was the guy. Uh, you know, it was kind of emerged as the big Colombian star of this latest generation. 2012 uh, got the silver medal behind uh, Vinukarov, and uh, some you know a little bit of some speculation there about what would have, what would have happened on that sprint. <laughs> so no, no kind of asterisk on this one. I mean, he won this, you know, all the way to the finish. Huge win. And he's been second and third. I mean, he's been up there a number of times in stages and like those Montreal races he was up there for Cannondale but never really brought it home so to see it finally happen for the dude in on, a tour on the stage this year, the Giro de Lombardia in uh, 2016 yeah I was hanging out by the Cannondale Draypack bus and cars and everything it's always kind of heartwarming to be near whatever team just won a stage particularly when it's a team like that hasn't won a tour stage in a little while versus like hanging out with Michael Matthews after he gets dusted exactly yeah, a little bit happier <laughs> a little bit happier than that a little bit happier but I, like one of the most heartwarming things for me is just watching all of the staff like start just randomly hugging each other and patting each other on the head and it makes you really it reminds you that this is very much a team sport uh, and that all there's you know there's there's like two dozen people behind all these bike racers who were you know just as happy as Rigo Iran with that stage win. It's heartwarming. I love it. Yeah, I mean, and now I think we can officially say not only is Team Cannondale, not only is that that pesky World Tour curse over, but like, are they on a roll? They're on a roll. Are they like... They're crushing in Austria. We're crushing in Austria. It's over now. Wow. But yeah, won all kinds of stuff. Seth Van Mark was on an absolute tear over there. I, 
I, I guess what what were they doing for two years? That's that's my question. Yeah, there's that part. <laughs> it was two years of close calls. Yeah, actually it was because I mean even Iran, Iran had had plenty of close calls just on his own. Well, and I think another thing that changed, and you know, Hody, you have a feature in Velo News, the magazine coming out about this, is the d- the decision to target stage victories ahead of going for GC ambitions in every single Grand Tour. I think that's something that really changed that seems to have been paying off for him. Yeah, it was a huge factor going into this year's Giro. You had Pierre Roulin, who was a guy who at some point actually did have some GC ambitions in the Tour. And he finally just pulled the plug. He and JV had a conversation over the winter. And and I think JV basically said, look, you're never going to win the Tour. You're never going to get to the podium. You're 31 years old. Let's win some stages this year and he was on the attack I think four or five days in this Giro in May and he came up he won and if he wins a big stage here there's still all opportunities for Roland he's been kind of hanging out waiting for his chances look at his chances in the Pyrenees and the Alps and if he wins another stage he'll be more valuable as a stage hunter than if he would if he's like a top seven guy on GC absolutely uh, to keep on the Cannondale theme the American, one of the Americans on that team, one of three Americans on that team, uh, the actually the only team with any Americans on it at this Tour de France, Andrew Talansky, uh, lost twenty plus minutes ah. unfortunately on Sunday. His GC goals are now his, behind his him. His watch is over. His watch is to over. To quote the great Game of Thrones, his watch <laughs> is over. His watch is indeed over. Uh, I'm going to guess that he had just a, a bad day, bad legs, and pulled the plug over the uh, the Mont de Biche. And, yeah, lost 20-plus minutes, and so now he is in stage hunter mode. Actually, he was spotted today carrying bottles for the rest of the team. Uh, that's an unfortunate turn of events for Andrew. We were really pulling for him this year. Uh, I know that the tour was really a focus of his entire season. So hopefully he can turn that around, uh, find some good legs, and, and yeah, maybe maybe he can go for a stage win now as well. He's, he's certainly he has the GC time buffer, so he and Roland uh, should be given some breathing room. Well, guys, I think we got. We need to get into the meat of it. The meat. The meat. <laughs> Hoodie, you had a steak for dinner. It's we time love to get. The meat. It's time to get to the steak of the conversation. Um, I mean, steak de bouffe. Steak de bouffe. The big conversation piece around stage nine was uh, a little bit of a tactical move by Mr. Fabio Aru. Uh, we're heading up the tactics final. Tactics is one word tactics. for it. Yeah. <laughs> heading up the final. Tactical swerve. Yeah, final, final climb of the day. And uh, all the favorites are there. And all of a sudden, Chris Froome, yellow jersey. Oh, big, tall Chris Froome, resplendent in yellow. Raises a big yellow hand up to say he has a mechanical. And Aru just takes off. Just attacks. <laughs> just underneath his arm. Full-blown attack yeah. mode. I was watching this, and I like. I think I spit out the milk of the cereal I was eating for breakfast that morning. Just like, oh, my God, what a brazen, dickish move. <laughs> but I applauded it because I was like, yeah, you know, what? all right, that guy. That guy's as, going as for it, it. As they say in Italian, che cazzo. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, you know, within cycling punditry, it, you know, brought up the old, the age-old super tired conversation that we seem to have every six weeks of yep. should they wait or not? Uh, me- mechanical problem chapter. Um, yes. So, Kaylee, you wrote about this today. I did. I wrote a little piece on this today. Uh, the crux of that piece is actually that it doesn't really matter what the particular circumstances are that surround one of these events. I think we need to get rid of this particular unwritten rule. Uh, the rule that you cannot attack the yellow jersey if the yellow jersey has a problem is absolute nonsense. This is a sport having a functional bicycle staying on that functional bicycle is part of cycling if you have an issue 
I think it's fair game. And, and the issue is that because there are all these, like I said, particular circumstances that surround these various events, you're having riders make these calls in real time when they're on the limit. They're not... It, 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 it's, they're not they're not making these decisions with all of the information in front of them. Uh, they tend to just be safe. You know, in this particular instance, Aru went, Richie Port sort of caught up to him, Dan Martin caught up to him, and then both those guys were like, all right, come on, cut it out. They're making hand motions to, to slow down. There's just, there's no way to enforce an unwritten rule fairly, equitably, and consistently. So I think we just get rid of it. Plus, it's just sort of crap for the sport. What's the weather like up on that milk crate that you're standing on right now? <laughs> He's way How's the view? There right How's now, the view man. on that high horse? <laughs> He's got some clouds up there, man. It's some clouds are like impairing his view. <laughs> uh, hoodie, any thoughts? Well, actually, I, I I agree actually with Kelly on most of those points. <laughs> Having said, we're sharing that uh, milk crate. But I think in this case, it was just a little bit, uh, you know, if we said a little bit cheeky yeah. for Mr. Aru. You know, it's hard to say if he did. He, did he, was did, did he attack as soon as he saw his uh, uh, Froome's arm go up? It was kind of funny because it was actually his ex-teammate Nibali did the same thing to Froome a couple of years ago. <laughs> won that stage. Very different circumstances though. Nibali at that point was not a GC factor. He was just going for the stage win. Is it an Italian thing? Do we have any it, Italian listeners? Maybe it's an Italian thing. Uh, email Italian us thing. at uh, yeah. Andrew Hood yeah. at uh, velonews.com. Gmail, yeah. <laughs> dot uh, fr. <laughs> but the uh, I think the the racer weight debate is, is is been way you know it's been it's been rehashed and rehashed ad nauseum. But I think in the most nine out of ten times. The race is on, you race. But in this particular instance, I have to say, Mr. Aru kind of crossed the line of gentility, let's put it. It's like, come on, guy. Sportsmanship. The smart thing to do is like wait till Froome chases back. He's a little bit on the limit. You keep kind of pacing, and then you attack. Yeah, we talked about this last night. Okay, so let me be absolutely clear here. I, I don't condone this particular action by Aru. Uh, I think it was a little bit dickish. I don't think that he was wrong, per se. I just think he was uh, not particularly nice. However, the thing to do, and this is just this is just an error on his part, is for optics alone, for the public relations alone, you just keep the pace high. Force Froome to chase back on. He's going to have to go into the red to chase back on. If you if you are continuing at you know six watts per kilo, he's going to have to go way over that to chase back well, on. He's going to have to go even faster if he spends the first uh, twenty seconds just programming his, his freaking computer. <laughs> that was actually pretty weird. Oh, uh, and that I, and then we had a bunch of conspiracy theorists telling us that he had a motor in his bike. But anyway, if you if you force him to chase, you force him to go into the red, and then you hit him as soon as he shows up. That's less of a polemic. Uh, you're still going to maybe get time on him. I think that's actually the way to do it. If you're, if you're going to be truly sneaky about it. I have a couple of thoughts here. You know, one of the things that Fabio Aru said, or maybe it was some other cycling pundit, which I agreed with was, you know, I had planned to attack at that point all along. So when I saw Froome go back, or if, well, I didn't see, I didn't not, not, maybe not see Froome <laughs> go back. You missed that skinny arm. I know, right? <laughs> With the elbows of doom, you, you miss it. But, you know, hey, I was going to, I was planning to attack there anyway, so just because this guy has, you know, problems with his gears, does that mean I have to change my plans? Like, I, I see the wisdom in that. That makes sense to me. Um, I also see the wisdom in saying that, like, uh, you know. The timing is suspicious. <laughs> timing is suspicious and just like, yeah, it was a total dickish move. Uh, but, I, uh, <laughs> but 
<laughs> what I loved, what I love, 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 what I absolutely love about this entire storyline is Fabio Aru trying to make it a non-story with his his response by saying, "Well, I just I didn't I didn't see him," and then Chris Froome, um, you know, several meters after he caught back on he like full on crashed into Fabio Aru just like knocked into him like aggressive style crashed into him it was an accident Fred it was an accident and his response was well I didn't mean to that was I didn't you know I <laughs> these guys would be very good politicians they would be extremely good politicians so we have Fabio, Fabio Aru giving the depends what the definition of is is Fred yeah, exactly <laughs> that I didn't that I didn't see it and then we have Chris Froome saying that I didn't mean it and we just have the greatest attempt to tamp down a polemica in the recent memory in cycling that I've seen suggests collusion. I think <laughs> I, I really I see no other way. I mean, they're obviously public clearly, relations collusion. They're for clearly sure. both completely full of it. Uh, oh and yeah. So, and so, therefore, I think the only way that they could possibly, you know, both have these stories. One of them would be like, yeah, yeah, that guy was a dick, right? Like right. that. One of them would would definitely do that. They must have chatted in the peloton and well colluded. In, in today's press conference, Froome did say that, oh yes, we've had a chance to talk about it, and we've totally smoothed it over. And Fabio explained to me that he didn't see that I had my arm raised, and I explained to him that I, you know, I swerved at an inopportune moment, and that's what made me crash into him and almost just crash him into wobble. the fans in a wobble. And we're both just good buddies now, and like. I just wonder if um, both Team Sky and Tia Mastana's like PR departments just were just circling the wagons after seeing this and like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, how are we going to deal with this? Literally, reporters are going to be asking about our guys this every single moment of every single day from now until Paris, and uh, these guys just took it upon themselves to diffuse the situation. <laughs> PR collusion, I'm telling you. Uh. We're on to you. It's just mere speculation We're on my part. We're on to you, part, Fabio Aru and Chris Froome. <laughs> you guys aren't super buddies. <laughs> and that's great. I got to say it. It's great. I loved it when I saw this because, you know, I sometimes find the whole, like, oh, wait, they should wait for him, the sportsmanship, very genteel and very sort of European and sort of, you know, being in love with the rules, or this, the gentlemanly nature of racing. And you know what? Damn it. I'm an American sports fan. I'm not too proud to admit this. I've watched... AFC championship games and wished for Thunderbolts to like come out of the sky and fry Tom Brady. Like one of those like win it all cost moments where I'm like, God, I wish the, the ground would open up and Tom Brady would fall into the earth. And you know, with that type of mindset, it's like, Oh, yeah, guy had a flat tire. Of course I'm going to attack. I have to say though, it strikes me as odd is that like, that is like the big hot, talking point really on social media is if Aru saw his arm going up and if Froome didn't wobble into Aru uh, on purpose when that stage was epic yeah. man. you got Richie Port out of the race yep. you got Nairo you know neutralized you got Contador out the back you got so many guys crashing out of the race you got Bardet attacking on the descent almost taking the yellow jersey and winning the stage and you have Uran in a photo finish in a mountain stage that, you know, how often do you have a, a photo finish on a mountain stage? And that's what everyone's talking about? That to me, what does that say about the, the cycling world, man, or the uh, social man, media perhaps? We gotta well. have controversy in cycling. <laughs> that's it. If it's not a we, doping polemica, it has to be something else. We do like a bit of controversy. <gasps> Moving on in the stage, though, there were some other controversies around the stage. Uh, the descent that took out Richie Port 
removed him from the race. Dan Martin went down. There was some discussion after the stage as to whether those descents were actually too dangerous, whether they were whether they belong in the Tour de France at all, particularly uh, when when you know in a stage that that is this important. Did that descent add anything? to the bike race. You know, it's an interesting conversation because I've I've heard some chatter about this talking about, you know, hey, this is the new age of cycling where, like, guys, it's not just about the climbs. It's about the descents. Guys are really willing to push it to the limits, push it past the limits in some examples to dry and get gaps on their foes where eh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, the guys kind of rode the descents, save for a couple of, you know, expert descenders. Um, they, They rode them I wouldn't say neutral, but they weren't doing what they're doing now. And now we're in the age where, you know, any descent can become a potential for a gap. So with that in mind, I mean, is it incumbent upon ASO, the organizer, to almost like save the riders from themselves? So like look at, you know, stretches of road and be like, well, these guys don't have the ability to not race this dangerously so you know, we have to dump down the course I don't know that's that's what I'm worried about here I think it's an interesting question I think that uh, they should do that actually I think in the Tour de France that road to me crossed the line really of what's appropriate in a race like this because we could have had deaths yesterday very easily and I think that uh, it added really nothing to the race, especially at this particular moment in the race. You have the GC still wide open. You have, you know, everyone racing to still win, racing to secure a podium spot. You know, maybe you do it in a different, much later in the race when the GC is much more settled and it has much more or less of a danger element to the race. I mean, guys, you know, some guys were doing it smart. Some guys were easing up. Like all, all the old-timers said to us just at the finish line, is this descent too dangerous? A lot of the old-timers said, well, all you have to do is go slower. And I think that uh, some of the riders did that. But we saw. I heard many riders actually say, uh, Dan Martin said it, Nairo Quintana said it. It's like, man, you know, the, the race organizers got what they want. Because sometimes you think the race organizers, they want the spectacle. They want the big show. It's putting guys' lives on the line. And to me, I, the more I thought about it, the more I was outraged by the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to George Bennett after the uh, after the stage, and he admitted to being scared. He said, I am never scared, but I was legitimately scared going down Montchat. Then again, he followed it up with, uh, then I slowed down. <laughs> he was coming down the hill with Simon Yates, and essentially he just he went past Richie Port, saw the carnage that was there, and just sort of sat up a little bit. Uh, you know, kept chasing as soon as they hit the flats at the bottom, but definitely stopped pushing on the descent. That is always an option. It's really hard to ask competitors at this level to, to make that decision, and maybe that's why they do kind of need to be protected from themselves, and we've discussed riders needed, needing to be protected from themselves in the past. I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of different areas within pro cycling where that is certainly the case. Still, I think that uh, I think that downhills are part of bike racing. I'm not sure that that descent in particular was in itself all that dangerous. I think that really what compounded the problem was the fact that it was wet. I think if, if it had been dry, I think we wouldn't. We, well, I, think, I don't think we would be having this conversation because I don't think any of those guys would have fallen down. Uh, Richie Port said that he locked up a rear wheel, which is sort of what caused him to miss the next corner. Cause the cause the big crash, yeah. I mean, I think that if, if that's a dry road, then, then he, th- those guys have no issues. Um, how much does this factor into it? The best stage racer in the world right now is a master descender who loves 
pushing it on the descents. You know, Chris Froome, we saw it last year, the Parasort. He attacked over the top, crushed the descent, got a gap. Um, he, I mean, he was the one who was really pressing the pace at the moment to try and bring back Roman Bardet. I mean, I'm not, I'm not insinuating that we should blame Chris Froome, but an interesting dynamic in the Tour de France right now is that the best guy at the race is also a master, master descender who's willing to push the pace here. And he was the one on the front at the time pushing the pace. Yeah. yeah. So it's going to be an interesting conversation that, I don't know, I mean, we, we could very much see, we could very much see uh, race organizers take action uh, in the beginning. Um, guys, Richie Port, I mean, huge loss to the excitement of this race. We're all very happy, very happy to hear that he, you know, is going to recover from these injuries. He had a uh, broken collarbone, and fractured collarbone, fractured hip. I mean, just judging by the, just looking at the the impact, I mean, you would have assumed it was much worse. I mean, he was going so fast. And he collided with that wall, took out Dan Martin. I mean, it was awful. What, what was your response when you when you saw that thing? Yeah, it was gut-wrenching to watch something like that when it happens to any rider, uh, particularly Richie, you know, not only at a personal level, it's a, it's a huge loss for him, for his team. It's a huge loss for the tour, too. I mean, you got really the only guy who could probably really challenge for him all the way to the finish and plus have any hope at all in that final time trial you know he's gone out of the race and so what does the race get from that but we're, we're happy to see uh, uh, Richie okay but I mean there was a few people saying that Richie probably in that situation knowing his own personal track record you know he could have eased up and we saw Fuglesang kind of coasting down yeah. behind. There was 15K to go at the bottom of that climb all the way to the finish, or 13K to go. Plenty of time. You know, but he was so afraid, I think that's what happened at the Dauphiné, of getting gapped out. He was maybe taking risks that he shouldn't have, and he had to, you know, unfortunately paid that price. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and now looking at the GC battle here into Paris, I mean, we have uh, Aru at 18 seconds. We have uh, Bardet up there. But, you know, Richie Porte, the guy who Chris Froome tapped to be the strongest guy at the Tour de France, whether it was head games or not, I mean, he's not there anymore. Yeah, it's a real shame. And the problem is that, yeah, everyone else in the race at this point now needs a solid minute, minute and a half minimum on Chris Froome going into that final 23-kilometer time trial in Marseille to have any hope of yellow in Paris. And so not only do they have to catch him, they have to pass him. And that's going to be really, really hard. Well, it's definitely going to be a storyline that we keep watching for the next uh, few days. Uh, I think we need to hear from some people. We do. Yeah. Who do we want to hear from first? Well, we just need George Bennett, actually. I think he's the only guy that we have yet to hear from. Okay. Uh, George gave us his usual weekly, well, actually bi-weekly diary. Sent it in from the rest day. Just a little rest day check-in. Uh, no Nate Brown. This week, we will have him again on Friday. Uh just a small technical snafu <laughs> again on Friday with Nate Brown but for now George Bennett currently 10th overall in the Tour de France and like I said 7th on that big Sunday stage let's hear his thoughts after the big day you know it feels so good so when I know you're skanking with me George Bennett here again, back with you after a rest day, a rest day of sorts, uh, not as peaceful as they used to be. Someone in the Dutch media found out I know three words of Dutch and now I have to do about six interviews in Dutch every day and uh, I don't actually know what we're saying, just pick a few random words so I'm sorry if I've offended anyone in Holland. Um, as for stage eight and nine, I don't know if I talked to you after stage eight but that was 
bloody difficult. Uh, Robert nearly won. That was that was uh, exciting. But then it, yeah, stage nine was a well. If you follow the Tour de France, you'll see probably it was one of the most dramatic stages I've ever been a part of. Um, ups and downs, and and yeah, for me the it was it was the first I guess real test of this race, and uh, yeah, I suffered like a dog, but but made it through, and, and more importantly, I got through with all my skin unlike a lot of other guys and uh yeah pretty sad to see robert kessent go home i just spent a month with him up in the mountains locked away in a little jail cell training seven hours a day so i know how hard he worked to to be there and to see him go home was very very sad for me uh, and also loss of my roomie yoss so i'm just flying solo in the in the in the ebus in Piragui at the moment um yeah, uh, obviously we saw Richie Port and G crashing out. Um, I think that's another big loss for the race. And, uh, yeah, I think that was kind of always going to happen, especially when you, you make a course like that and then you have a team of Frenchies going full gas, attacking on a downhill in the rain. It's, uh, it's probably great to watch, but I was definitely shitting myself down that mountain. Um, today we have a few more easy stages. Um and I definitely think they're needed along the peloton. I saw some some people just crawling in on their knees yesterday. Uh, we also saw Aru having a dig when when Froome he put his hand up. Um, interesting tactic. We'll see if it uh, pays off for him. It was it was good to see a bit of uh, New Zealand shoulder dropping happening, but further up the road. Um, yeah. It's good stuff, good quality bike racing, and uh, yeah, high drama, high stakes, and we'll, yeah, we'll see what happens now. Um, into the Pyrenees, hopefully nothing dramatic happens these days. I just want to resume my normal position, rolling last wheel at the back, and move up for the final. So keep an eye out, and um, see you again in the Pyrenees. Cheers. All right, guys. Well. We have uh, we're, we may be patioed out. Um, might be time to pack up the old Villanue's podcast for this Monday night. Finish our beers and head to the hotel, um, guys. Let's let's finish off with one quick uh, round of questions here. Um, French coffee or French beer? What do you got? Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm do, we, do we most want or least want? What's the question here? Uh, uh, most, most. <laughs> Italian coffee, French women. <laughs> I, don't, I really don't want either of those How things. How about French pizza? No. No, no, no. French pizza. I just, I just had a great French cheeseburger. Oh, okay. It was excellent. I'm, I'm changing the question and getting a French cheeseburger. <laughs> I'm getting a French uh, train, TGV. It was delightful. That was lovely. It was lovely. It got me down here. And um, when French bike racing, that's the other thing we got to, you know, we always have to keep in the back of our minds because it's the freaking Tour de France. Anyway, we would love the feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the VeloNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you are there, please 
leave us a comment and a rating. I can't emphasize that enough, folks. Leave us a comment and a rating. It really helps us out. Become a fan of Vela News on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The Vela News podcast is produced by Vela News, which is owned by the competitor group. The thoughts and opinions and all those hot takes on the Vela News podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy classic, Soul Drums. Oh, 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 oh,